0: Welcome to the final Tradfest podcast. It's been a really steep learning curve, but we'll hit the ground running when the next pandemic hits. Douglas. I'm Douglas Robertson.
1: And I'm jane Ann Purdy.
0: What's on the show? The final podcast.
1: Absolutely fabulous show to finish with. We have Signe Jacob's daughter, uh, explaining how her life has changed during lockdown. We have a fabulous interview with Nuala Kennedy and Eamon O'Leary. Nuala in Ireland. Amen in New York. And our final Shugle story, Gary Finlayson. But before all that, we're going to hear from Steve Byrne from Malinky, who has done an amazing job doing a look back at the life of the late, great Paddy Bort.
2: Folks, we've got Malinky here, uh, a band that more or less started uh, on these very premises, did floor spots for us, and then uh, rose through the first CD to the second CD. And now our veritable folk stars, international, just back from a German tour, and we're very, very glad to have them here because it's the last time that they are in the original uh, lineup and uh, the, the lineup of the second CD, not really. That you will see th- the changes have already crept in, but uh, we're very, very happy to have them here. And uh, you obviously cherish having them here, so please put your hands together, give them a big rousing welcome here at the Pleasance at Carrying Stream, Malinke. Hey!
3: And thus began Minnie's intro at Edinburgh Folk Club, the inimitable voice of the much-missed Paddy Bort. My name's Steve Byrne, singer and folklorist from the band Malinky, and the folks at Soundhouse have asked me to put together a wee podcast looking back at the life of a friend to many on the folk scene, not just in Scotland, but across the UK and Europe. Most of us knew Paddy through his involvement with the award-winning Edinburgh Folk Club and the wee folk club at the Royal Oak in Edinburgh's Infirmary Street, just yards from his office at Edinburgh University where he worked in the Institute of Governance, studying mainly Scottish politics, but with a keen European eye. I'll be speaking to a handful of people who knew Paddy well. I'll also be speaking a wee bit about how I knew Paddy, and as his only right, featuring some of his own voice from interviews I did with him over 20 years ago, when I was a young folklore student at the School of Scottish Studies. Curiously, he was the same age then as I am now. So let's start with Paddy, and how he became interested in the folk scene.
2: Well, I mean my initiation to the folk scene was in the early 1970s and that was the the height of the wave of of the folk revival in Germany, which was very much a thing driven by visiting Irish, Scottish, uh, American uh, folk artists. Eddie and Finbar Fury made it in Germany just around sort of late 60s early 70s the Boskers, same family basically. Uh, Alex Campbell, of course, uh, was a a great guy in Germany. Uh, Hamish Imlach was big. Ian McIntosh, they recorded in Germany in the late 1960s throughout the 1970s and 1980s. Um, So, the early 70s was probably the the heyday of the folk revival uh, in terms of the wave coming to Germany. And the interesting thing was that a couple of folk in Germany started playing Irish music, Scottish music, we had plenty of groups. And one of the interesting stories that I came across when I was in Galway was that they said, oh yeah, you know, we remember well the early 70s. Uh, there was this one band from Germany over and they played Irish music so perfect. They were even better than the Irish. But that was a band that then turned out to become Lidayan. And Lydangan sort of made the switch in the, I think the mid-70s it was, when they said, hey, why are we playing Irish music? Uh, Is there nothing equivalent in Germany? That interview was from
3: research I was doing on the interest in Scottish and Irish music in Germany and Austria as part of my studies. I was looking at how young people in those countries latched on to Irish and Scottish music almost as a replacement for their own traditional folk song, which had been highly commercialised and oversweetened, you might say, as well as impacted by its use by the Third Reich. I think it's interesting for listeners on this side of the North Sea to hear a bit more about the background as to why local traditional songs fell out of favour in Germany in the 20th century, as Paddy explains.
2: Those world wars, and of course particularly the Nazi regime, were devastating. Because lots of those songs, and in a way, with what I've said, that ordinary people still sang the songs uh might be gleaned from the fact that the soldiers sang them
4: mm-hmm.
2: you know they sang uh a brunnen vor dem Tore or uh or whatnot. you know i mean all these kind of songs actually when i grew up i mean my family there's you know when we had our family outing on a sunday uh, some of the songs would be sung right. but they would probably be sung in the family and not that much in public because lots of these songs although they are absolutely innocent in, in, in themselves had been tainted by the fact uh, that they were sung by the wrong people in the wrong place, oh, right. in, yeah. in in the wrong clothing, uh, in hotnail boots and, and uniforms, uh, occupying armies. Now, Irish folk songs never had this problem, that an Irish conquering army uh, would sort of devastate places outside Ireland uh, and would sing the songs yeah, in a triumphalist way, you know. Right. Um, so, again, there is this problem, particularly in post-war, post-World War II Germany, uh, that you have a multiply broken tradition of folk song. You have, uh, you're left with the commercial sector on the one hand of umta bands, you know, beer, beer hall music. You have a very strong influence of refugees and repellees, you know, people who were expellees, who were, who were, who came from the borderlands, who had been expelled from the Sudeten, expelled from Romania, expelled from Yugoslavia, expelled from Poland, uh, the Silesians, you know, and all that sort of thing. And they came and had, and they needed their own folklore and traditions and music as part of it, very much as a sort of a, a, a marker of their own identity. So they became very influential in the 1950s and 60s, right. blending with the Alpine stuff of, of, of Bavaria, became dominant. And it's, it's certainly nothing that would fire the imagination. Right. of uh, a young generation, uh, a 68th generation. Sure. Yeah. In Scotland, Ireland, England to a certain degree, uh, America, you had this fusion in the 1950s and 60s of a revival of traditional music and a revival that is at the same time a renewal of traditional music. You can hear
3: from Paddy that for him, folk song and traditional culture was very much rooted in a deep awareness of history, not least the communities and traditions surrounding the still very young, in relative terms, borders of the German state. We arrived in Edinburgh within a year of each other in the mid-90s, and it wasn't long before our paths crossed at Edinburgh Folk Club and a range of other activities, including, it must be said, drama, With the likes of myself, Paddy, the late Frank Bechhofer, Roddy MacDonald, Andy May, Ian MacLennan and a host of others all took part in Irish plays by the likes of Flan O'Brien as fundraisers for the Royal Oaks annual charity do not least because of Paddy's hibernophile tendencies. Indeed, his thesis from the University of Tübingen was on Anglo-Irish relations and 20th century Irish drama. Paddy had also spent a year in Dublin teaching German studies at Trinity College. So when he arrived in Edinburgh in 1995, his accent was something that confused people a little when they first met him, looking not unlike a stray member of the Dubliners, I don't think he'll mind me saying. Folklorist Dr Margaret Bennett remembers meeting him for the first time.
5: I met him at the Edinburgh Folk Club, and I really thought he was Irish for every point of view. You know, even his laugh. <laughs> Doesn't that sound ridiculous? But, but but then when I got talking to him, I thought, maybe he, he he was Irish, but he'd maybe lived in Germany. I didn't think it was the other way around. He was quite an amazing character, and I just, you know, it warmed to him right away.
3: Paddy's great pal Alan Macmillan from Edinburgh Folk Club recalls their first encounter.
6: It was actually March... 2001. It was two friends of mine took me to Edinburgh Folk Club, and I'd been away from folk music for a while, so I hadn't been to any clubs. And it was to see Davy Arthur of the Furies fame, because they were pals of Davy Arthur when he used to stay in the south side of uh, Edinburgh. So when I went along there, I, I saw some people I had never seen for years, and there standing the bar was this big, larger than life figure, which was Fatty. Um, I'm sure at that time he was um, vice chair to either Frank or Jean Beckhofer So I started going back on a regular basis and then I did chat to him So it was, I was going for a, a wee while before I found out he was actually German because I just presumed the lad was Irish because he would get up sometimes and compare Next again year and he took over as uh, chair and then that, my involvement was they were looking for help and I just said, oh, well I could sell raffle tickets. And it kind of just snowballed from there, I was co-opted and then I ended up vice chair to Paddy. We seemed to hit it off, him being an academic and me not being an academic, people were puzzled how that one worked out. But we got on really well and always plenty of laughs.
3: Wednesday nights at the Folk Club at Edinburgh's Pleasance Cabaret Bar were usually rounded off with a trip up to the renowned folk house of Sandy Bells in Forest Road. Of course, the Wheel Kent haunt of that other giant of the Edinburgh folk scene and a hero of Paddy's, Hamish Henderson. In 2002, Hamish Henderson died. And later that year, in my role as Traditional Arts Officer for the City of Edinburgh Council, I worked with Paddy to initiate the annual Hamish Henderson Lecture as part of the Carrying Stream Festival, which continues to this day. Paddy went on to put the contents of many of those lectures into a series of books about Hamish, published by Grace Note and Gonzalo Matsai, husband of Dr. Margaret Bennett. Margaret takes up the story.
5: Well, there are over 70 essays in all four of them, and Paddy wrote them really substantial introductions. It wasn't just, I'm introducing and this is what's in the book. He had profound, and quite often philosophical, um, historical, geographical, sociological essays that introduced them. And so Paddy's own essays are important. I spent the early part of the first lockdown reading them again and reading them slowly, because the first time around, I kind of whizz through them and you want to get to this bit or that. And I thought, wow, who would have given us all that energy to put this together? And it had to be done then because the people who contributed to these first Four volumes, and you are among these people, are people who are so close to Hamish's work, and I think they have left a much. It's not a. It's not a creation of a mythology of the man. They are really quite remarkable. Paddy asked me to write the fourth. I wrote four essays, and I said, oh, Paddy, I don't know what else. And he was very persuasive. He said, I remember you said one day that you interviewed Howard Glasser. I said, well, yes, I did, because he met Hamish in 1953. Well, he said, I want that. That has to be published. And when I look at it now, it's it's remarkable what Howard Glasser said about him. But had Paddy not said, come on, write this one or that one, I may never have done it. So it was just, oh gosh me, what a legacy to have that kind of passion and devotion. That's it. He had both passion and devotion.
3: What was less well known to many of us in the folk world, away from his folk club organising and emceeing duties, was his highly regarded career in studying and researching politics. Matters of borders and borderlands permeated Paddy's work in the political sphere, and in his early years in Scotland, of course, the country voted for devolution and the Scottish Parliament was established. Events over the following years became something of a political laboratory for Paddy, documenting the evolution of devolution. As well as authoring annals of the Holyrood Parish, looking back at a decade of the Parliament prior to 2014, Paddy ran a major internship programme through the university, placing students mainly from North America with MSPs from across the parties. He became a wheel-kent figure at the foot of the mile, with two parliamentary motions and a letter of condolence from the First Minister herself, marking Paddy's passing. Maddy Cancro from Kansas worked closely with Paddy on the internship programme.
7: So Paddy ran the programme, what he did was he would pair interns with msps he held one-on-one interviews with all of the interns and asked us what our interests were kind of what our goals were for the program what we wanted to get out of it and what policies we were particularly invested in you know my my ask of him was to work with a woman in power and he said oh i have just the person so he was a political matchmaker of sorts Paddy's MSPs were really loyal to his program, and he really made sure. You know, you'd kind of see him from time to time, just strolling through the parliament and checking in and saying hi. And you know, um, he had you kind know, of a permanent security pass to go in.
3: I also asked Maddie whether any of Paddy's political leanings had shown through his work. But had he expressed anything around the time of the Scottish independence referendum or Brexit?
7: My understanding in 2014 was that he was a bit sceptical of Scottish independence. I don't think he was entirely opposed, but just obviously, as someone who comes from Europe, I think there was the fear in 2014 of Scotland being, you know, removed from the European Union. And I obviously know, you know, Paddy had a deep inner workings and would have had his own. You know, strongly held beliefs about Scottish politics, but I think that he really worked to not bias any of us. He just really loved Scotland, and whatever Paddy felt was best for Scotland would have been his choice.
3: As we've heard, due to the nature of his job, Paddy wasn't overtly political in any particular direction in Scotland, although he had been a town councillor in his home area in Germany for the centre-left SPD. However, his apolitical outlook in Scotland didn't mean that he didn't think there were things about the country that needed to change. Paddy became involved with the group Nordic Horizons, and just before he died, he had finished the final edits on a book about Scotland's potential future after the Brexit vote, McSmurger's Board, published by Lewis Press, and co-authored with journalist and broadcaster Leslie Riddich.
8: He turned up to a couple of Nordic Horizons meetings. This was the think tank I'd sort of set up with uh, a fellow traveller, Dan Wynne. He kind of piped up within a Nordic Horizons meeting and was just so cogent, so coherent and actually also so sort of passionate, really, about the subject that it just really, you sort of thought, I need to speak to that guy afterwards. So I did Of course, Paddy suggested we all go back to the pub and then just continued the chat. And very shortly after that, he stepped up to be part of the steering committee. And after that, you know, pretty much Nordic Horizons and and, and Paddy. Paddy was an absolute linchpin of the group. The thing about Paddy was, although he had all this kind of academic expertise in certain areas, the thing he really brought to Nordic Horizons was just boundless energy. And a sort of upbeat outlook, you know, there would be days where I would think, oh, God, you know, what's the point? Nobody's listening to any of this and we're not getting anywhere. And Paddy would just just dismiss that sort of attitude quickly, say, no, it's OK, I can do most of the work and, you know, you can just come in when you, you know, you know, there's a little bit that you can do and we can do it and we can do this. That's how board started. After the Brexit referendum in 2016, we immediately, as Nordic Horizons, decided to have an event that was bringing together... As many different Nordic countries and sub countries like the Faroes and Greenland as we possibly could to say, look, how does a small country the size of Scotland relate to the EU? And actually, that's where the title comes from because it turns out there is a veritable smorgasbord of options. So looking at it from the Scottish point of view, we just kept referring to the book as board <laughs> And eventually we just, uh, the publisher, Gavin from Lewith, just said, well, look, let's just call it board because that's what we're ending up describing it as. Um, the event itself was a bit of a stoter. We had about three or four hundred people coming to it, which is great testimony to Scotland that people would turn out on a Saturday to come to a a sort of abstract sounding debate with people they don't know to just try and tease apart what could be the future for Scotland. And that too, Paddy, was a massive part of organising that and get, as usual, there was all the logistics to arrange for all these speakers. Fiona Hislop, who was the Scottish Government's Cabinet Minister, came along. She was meant to just be there to do a speech for half an hour. She stayed for the whole day, it was that interesting. And I think afterwards, you know, it had been a good event, but still it was only experienced by the 300 folk in the room. So Paddy was the one who said, look, there's enough in this to turn it into a book. Now at that point, since I was still thrashing away with a PhD, I just said I just can't even think of doing that. So he said, "Well, look, I'll do the bulk of it. We'll get the folk who made the lectures to, to to provide chapters. We'll edit it together into something that can be easily read, and it'll be like a little primer for people." So that's what we did, and it was—I mean, of course, he was right. He was always right. I can't think of a single proposal he made that wasn't good. He had a sense of what was timely and important because this book. <laughs> it's time will come again, and it is coming pretty darn quickly now that Scotland is is moving towards a second independence referendum, but has to consider the fact that England is actually Brexited. So we may have to consider different arrangements, and that's where a really close understanding of that halfway house that Norway and Iceland occupy might be something that more people in Scotland want to know about.
3: I remember speaking to Paddy in the run-up to the first independence referendum, and I always got the feeling that, the sort of federalist, the localist in him wouldn't really let him come over to the, the indie side. And I, I wouldn't ask you to put words into his mouth, but what do you think he would make of the current Burach?
8: I know Paddy would be right in the middle of this because so much of the sort of collapse, really, of the way that the Union operates, or perhaps that sort of um, post-war settlement people talk about that kept the Scots interested and in, in, in believing in the possibilities of the Union have been falling apart under Boris Johnson. Of course, Boris was only an awful figment in the imagination at the time that Paddy died. So the kind of collapse still further into populism and, and what do they call it now, muscular unionism, eroding even the Scottish Parliament as it exists, that would have driven him bonkers.
3: For Paddy's funeral in March 2017, a delegation went out from Scotland. Myself, Alan Macmillan and John Barrow from Edinburgh Folk Club and the publisher, Gonzalo Metzai. We all flew out to Stuttgart and then on to the town of Laufen am Neckar, home of the Phoenix pub and the Insel Folk Festival, held on the island in the River Neckar, organised and compared by Paddy, with support from the pub's then-owner, Klaus Rosenberg and his team. Paddy explains the history of his connection with the Phoenix in Laufen.
2: Well, I mean, I'm I'm attached to a a pub, uh, an Irish pub, which uh, one of 600 or so in Germany uh, but with a slight difference, I mean the idea of it was born in the early 1980s as part of a cultural concept uh, and have basically a folk club uh, but as 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 a very individualistic Irish pub but not a sort of a Guinness investment uh, sort of uh, one from the, the big Guinness store you know sure. uh, so it was individually crafted by a, a joiner who, who had its heart's blood in that you know and uh, we saved old woods old ceilings from officers messes and things like that and created that thing and eventually it opened in 1992 and we started with three nights of music um, one was a German band playing Irish music <laughs> uh, ballads and all that uh, Zeitenwind from Karlsruhe uh, one was a piano player from, from Tübingen, a German guy who plays all kinds of new ragtime but also plays Irish uh, and Celtic stuff on the piano which was quite nice and what was the third one I tend to forget we had three, three nights of, of, of our music and since then uh, we've, we've had let's say an average of uh, a gig every three weeks there
3: Alan McMillan recalls some of his memories of our trip to Laufen and the Phoenix to bid Paddy farewell. It
6: was about a five minute walk to the actual re- Paddy's last resting place and uh, when we were walking, the two of us, we could hear the town I love so well getting played on a trumpet. <laughs> Man, but this is just, this is just great. And then I I just think the, the way these people looked after us, the, the the fun we had, there was more laughing. Than. Actually, to this day, when I speak to Margaret Bennett and Alison and Jordi and that, Gonzalo, Paddy's name is always there because he's always right. mentioned. It's just lovely, like, you know, it's absolutely lovely. I'm just um, so happy that I met the guy.
3: A few days after his passing, Alan wrote a poem for his pal, Te Paddy.
6: I'd heard him lecture on politics and art and other subjects I couldn't impart and talk of things I didn't quite see, but hey... It was just a pal to me. I missed the phone calls, I missed the texts, I missed the emails and all the rest, receiving instructions where posters should be, but hey, I didn't mind. It was just a pal to me. Wednesday was our night, Paddy, me, and John B. Sitting up in bells after the EFC. He would laugh and accuse us of causing a fuss. But we didn't mind he was just about to us. I would kid him on, but he knew that I cared because I saw that smile behind the beard. And he would push you to be the best you could be. But hey, that's only right, because he was just about to me.
5: I think he brought people together and, in, and, and woke, woke certain sectors up, woke people up. But more than that, he made people feel as if they mattered and, and uh, Hamish did this. There was no boundaries of class or occupation or education because Hamish, well Paddy was like that. If you look around at the friends he had, it was such a range. And I think that's a really important element in any human being, far less anybody involved in folk music and the folk scene. So that part of that legacy is embracing everybody
8: I was conscious that he was behind the scenes, always just trying to kind of increase knowledge, increase connections, um, just try to try to find outlets for young people and not just kind of talking about it in the abstract, but actually spending lots of time just knitting these possibilities together, which was extraordinary.
3: In summer 2017, a memorial concert was organised by Edinburgh Folk Club. I was delighted to take part with Malinky and a whole host of musical friends to celebrate Paddy and to raise money for the new Paddy Bort Fund, which aims to help young musicians and has been a source of support to many performers during the Covid crisis. Alan McMillan explains how Paddy's name and legacy live on.
6: And Paddy's name, we've raised probably over £15,000 and helped 70 musicians up to now, but we're still doing it. But Paddy's name lives on and he and helped people... He was so helpful to young musicians like yourself, and he's still helping.
3: A huge range of people were in touch with me once they heard I was making a podcast about our mutual friend Paddy Bort, so I imagine I might well come back to this in the form of an even longer programme further down the line. But for now, I hope you've gotten a flavour of the man in a bit more depth than the larger-than-life character you might have encountered at Edinburgh Folk Club once in a while. I'd like to thank Margaret, Gonzalo, Leslie, Maddy, Alan... Claire Adamson, Chris Wright, and the Edinburgh Folk Club, who all helped me put the podcast together, and to Soundhouse, Jane Ann, and Douglas for the opportunity to remember our dear friend, the much missed Paddy Bort. I'll leave you with the outro from a recording of a song I know that Paddy loved, but with a difference. We sang this same version at the Memorial Concert in Edinburgh, but this recording comes from the heart of Germany and the Rudolstadt Festival later that summer. Where I led a troop of Scots and Gaelic singers and musicians, celebrating our traditions with our European neighbours. And yes, there were a few tires with European stars that day. Vielen Dank, Paddy, mein Freund. Wenn die Krähen krächzen schlimm in euren Häusern, alle Kinder Adams werden superbrot und ein
4: Zuhause finden. Und wenn mal kleinen
3: Glasgow vereint mit Freunden. All die Rosen und Kirschen in Blüte stehen. Und ein schwarzer Junge
4: aus gab die Galgen der
3: Spießbürger bricht dahin.
0: So you just heard, O komt Alle, die ihr glout an Freiheit, better known on these shores as Freedom Come All Ye. Thanks to Steve Byrne for that glimpse into the life of the late, great Paddy Bort.
1: And if you'd like to donate to the Paddy Bort Fund mentioned in that piece, you can do it via the Edinburgh Folk Club website, efc1973.com.
0: So we'll move on now to the lockdown life of Icelandic percussionist Signy.
9: Hi, my name's Signy and I play drums and percussion with the She. I'm their most recent recruit, so still really new in the band but I've had a couple of tours with the guys already and just really enjoying getting to know all of their tunes and hanging out, what a great bunch So, my lockdown life well things have changed so much for me Last year, when lockdown happened, I was looking forward to a great year ahead with loads of exciting gigs in the diary. And it took a long time to come to terms with all of that changing, postponing and rescheduling, just lots of unpredictability, which is really, well, it can be hard to deal with. It's easy to get anxious and nervous about all of that stuff. So one of the things I really enjoy doing is cycling. And when everything stopped, it was just so amazing the way all of the roads just went quiet, no traffic, and very few people about. I'm quite lucky to live in a part of North Glasgow, which is right on the country. And there's loads of beautiful little roads. So I just used to take off on my bike and get some cycling done. really loved that. Kept my head together. I also really enjoyed baking. Um and it really helps me unwind. Although it was a challenge to figure out what to bake, given the shortage of flour. Uh, I just remember making lots of meringues. But the only problem is, during lockdown, you couldn't really share food, or it was hard to know if that was okay or not. So we just ended up eating them all ourselves. Anyway, been doing lots of adapting, and learning how to keep my musical practice going from home, using technology. At the moment, I'm just loving hearing the new compositions coming in from the Girls in the She. And I'm just starting to play around with them and make up percussion ideas that might work. I always just feel really privileged when I get to hear tunes at their early stage, when they're just really fresh. I find that really exciting. Yeah, so that's a little flavour of what I've been up to. I hope you're all well. Cheers!
1: Thanks very much, Signy. We'll take some of your meringues any day. We move on now to Ireland and New York all at the same time to talk to Nuala Kennedy and Eamon O'Leary. Nuala Kennedy and Eamon O'Leary have been a duo for the best part of a decade. The two singers and multi-instrumentalists met in New York where Eamon moved from his native Dublin in the early 90s. With John Doyle, they make up the Alt, a band of expat Irish folk playing the festival circuit in the States and Europe. The duo, Nula tells me, is more easygoing and prefers to tour off the beaten track. An acoustic concert in a remote Yukon town is their idea of heaven. Sadly, they've yet to appear together in Scotland. Covid saw to that. So in lieu of the gig they should have been playing at Tradfest, we're catching up with them at home remotely. Hi there. How are you doing? Hi, Nula. Hi. Hi, jane Allen Douglas. Hi, Eamon.
10: Hi, how are you?
1: Hi. So, uh, Eamon, where, where are you right now?
10: I'm on the Lower East Side of uh, New York City. I am just came down from the mountains for this august occasion. I've been living mostly up in the Catskill Mountains, uh, upstate New York, since this whole crazy year kicked in. And uh, um, I'm down in New York where I've lived now for uh, over 20 years. Uh, But I did manage to sneak in one trip Back home to Ireland last oh. month, and oh, wow. got to see the got to see the family. So, oh, but uh, cool. I'm I'm certainly missing the uh the rambling life. Yeah. These days.
1: Sure. What
11: about Nula, Where are you? I'm in Ennis in County Clare on the west coast of Ireland. Um, we moved here from the states. We went from Venice to Ennis <laughs> in. Um, August, the August before COVID struck. Yeah. And um, yes, we've been we've been settling into our new home and um, making the most of of home time. Yeah. Dying to get out and about again as well. And um, get stuck into a few adventures, Indeed. musical
1: and, and otherwise. It's been a lot of home time in the last year.
0: So we're really sorry yeah. that you so really sorry you couldn't play at Tradfest this year because it was going to be your kind of Scottish debut, wasn't it? As a duet. A duo. Whatever. Yeah.
11: I was really excited about um showing aiming around the west coast of Scotland and you know, playing playing at Tradfest together and we were supposed to be doing a, a couple of other little gigs and and recording our duo record up in in the highlands outside Fort William with um Ziggy Campbell up there in his studio, oh, beautiful, okay. converted okay. school, and um, it had to be postponed. But sadly, oh, so
1: you were going Hopefully. to feed Eamon to the midges, weren't you? Really, <laughs> <laughs> I was used to
11: that now. You know, a few holidays in, in Ireland would see to that.
10: <laughs> yeah, no, that was one of definitely one of the things on the calendar that I was very much looking forward to this year. In a a long list of things that, of course, that got cancelled. Yeah. But I have, hope it'll certainly happen again.
1: Have you played in in Scotland much yourself, Eamon, with other folks? Or?
10: I have a small bit. Uh, yeah. I mean, I you know, I, well, I did the Celtic Connections gig with, with John and Nola as the out a few years yeah. back, and Nola has shown me around Edinburgh a bit. Uh, and I was there, again, not too, was it, Maybe 2019. I was there with uh, my old friend Sam Amadon, who is based down in London. Uh, yeah. He's a, a Vermonter uh-huh. uh, originally, but he he. I went up and played a lovely show with him at. Uh, well, now the name of the theatre escapes me, but uh, so I, I've spent a, yeah a bit of time up there, but um, not really in the more you know just in the cities. Really, I haven't really seen the the. The more the wild. rugged, ah, wild, the wild parts of, of the country, which I'd love to.
1: Yeah. So um, I believe that you two kind of met in New York. Um, uh, I think you'd met a few times before you actually started kind of playing together. Um, I wonder about the what the session scene was like then in New York and how it compared to what you had left behind in Dublin, Eamon, when you first arrived there.
10: Well, yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was great. I mean, I, I had a, I mean, of course, great memories of Dublin and, and, and playing there when I was, you know, in my college days and younger days. But, uh, the thing about the, the, the scene in New York, of course, was that because it's a place that everyone passes through eventually, you know, mm-hmm. every tour and musician, every, so you, you just, eventually everyone will come to you. You don't have to go anywhere. <laughs> and, uh, nula would have been one of those you know on the road passing through and often people will play their show play their gig and then end up at some disreputable bar in some (laughs) corner of the city and and that's where the session would happen (laughs) yeah exactly so you know i met so many people in in just that fashion over the years and uh of course we have all kinds of friends in common and before that but um but no, it was great. And then it was some years before we kind of actually started doing a bit of traveling together. But,
11: uh, yeah, probably, I think we started playing together a bit more when I moved over there. I was there for a year in 2011 with DJ and we got a a place there in Brooklyn at Grand Army Plaza. And, um, I used to go in for sessions and Eamon was very kind to me and, and threw me the a few bones here and there. to help me get settled in. Was very nice,
9: yeah.
10: If ever friendless Irishman passes my way, all that. <laughs> <laughs> that's
11: right. You're the go-to man for that,
10: as the song says. Yeah.
11: Passing it on. I remember John telling me that he gave you a gig when you first arrived in in New York. That well, right?
10: that's that's absolutely true. I think I arrived on. This is back in the early nineties. Mm. I arrived in New York on a on a Tuesday night and on Wednesday night I had a gig because, uh, it was, it's just that type of community. And I I went, I went for a few drinks the night of my arrival and there was a note left behind the bar from John Doyle and the lend of a guitar. And it said, be at this place tomorrow night, eight o'clock, you have your first gig. And I I think I had to restring the guitar because he's left-handed of course, but, uh, yeah, so I, 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 I was, I was hard at work. There was no honeymoon. I was straight to work when I arrived. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Great. So is that is that what I mean? I'm trying to, trying to just gauge what's the kind of the attraction for an Irish musician of living in the United States. You know, we 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 speak to a few musicians during the Trump years, American musicians who were desperately searching their ancestry for somebody who was Irish. <laughs> they oh, could absolutely. move. They could move out of the states and get away from what you know, whether it's a gun culture or or whatever, you know? So there's obviously a real attraction over there. And is it just the size of the scene, the size of the...
10: I or? suppose. And, and, I mean, as you, as of course you know, I mean, m- you know, moving, emigrating is not what it once was. I mean, I, I still spend a lot of time back and forth and mm. a lot of time in Ireland, touring Ireland every year, at least once or twice a year, uh, and around Europe. So, but just being based there, you know, whatever other circumstances made that just made that an easy base for me to, and I, I do have spent a lot of time on the roads of, you know, the U S and Canada tour. And, and it's, yeah, it's a huge place. I mean, in Ireland, you know, as you probably know, there's a, there's a kind of a well-worn circuit of gigs and there's some mm-hmm. fantastic gigs, uh, but just the scale of the thing, you can kind of keep moving through America and not, not see the same place twice, you know? Of course. Uh, which is one of the appeals, I suppose.
1: And how is it for you, Nuala, now being back in Ireland after a bit of time in the States? So you settled into, before COVID anyway, a really lovely, healthy session scene. And then tell, tell us about Ennis. Adrian got a job in, in Limerick and we were looking at the
11: map and I saw Ennis, I thought, oh yeah, I've passed through there a couple of times, had some great nights out and um, great tunes here. And I remembered a friend of mine, um, Joan Hanrahan, telling me at a party in in Washington, D.C., she was over teaching and she had told me about a great school here that her kids were going to. So I remembered that and I added all those things together and we moved across the road from the school.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Very handy.
11: And uh, yeah, great, lovely um, Lovely town, Ennis is beautiful and County Clare is stunning. And the music's great. I mean, you can walk into town and usually, of course, COVID stopped everything. But um, we did get to dip or dip our toe in the water and go in for a few tunes and walk home, have dinner. I mean, just great to be able to walk, walk everywhere. And um, yeah, love, love the town. People are very friendly. And I think it's won some official awards for friendliness. Of, oh, there you, you go. You
0: know. when we came to see um, you, remember you sort of grabbed your flute. We thought we're going out for a pint, and I noticed you grabbing instruments in the way at the door. <laughs> and we kind of went from pub to pub, where there was just there was a session in on each one, and it was like the the quality, the standard of the playing was incredible. I mean, oh, so, some of the people around I mean, Dennis just seemed, these are not necessarily musicians either, really, all of them. I think I mean they they are they're great musicians, but that's not really they're not professional musicians or make their living that way.
11: Yeah, they're just there's just fantastic players, and sometimes if I was in playing a few tunes myself, I I would like to go to another bar and just listen to some of the musicians playing here because it's um, it's different repertoire and different people playing lovely lovely style of playing, and I just think yeah, it's a it's a hot spot, and there's something ridiculous like 70 sessions a week in the summer or something. I don't know. It's great. It's, you know, it's a paradise for, for the music and and a lot of people visit here, pass through here. Like Eamon was saying, it's a, it's a, a destination town. So that's nice too, because not long after I moved here and we all moved here, John Doyle was passing through and, you know, Kathy Jordan, our friend was, was playing at Glore and, Clore is our local theater. It's Mm -hmm. it's fantastic. They do great stuff there, too. So it felt very much like like our lives had been in the States. You know, we'd see people every now and again playing and passing through town. But then also there's just a lot of local musicians who are are fabulous and Mm -hmm. um, good, good company.
1: So, how have you been sustaining yourself musically in the past year? Have you been some projects that you've been getting on with and connecting with some new musicians? Yeah,
11: I've been so lucky. I feel like during this, this what's been a terrible time. I know for for a lot of people, I've I've been very fortunate. And I've been working on, um, a commission for the theatre here of new music, um. And that's for a quartet. So I've been really working on that most of my time and then playing uh, with Tara Breen, the fiddle player um, she lives around the corner. And we've mm-hmm. been collaborating on um, some new music that's related to archive recordings. So I've spent right. quite a bit of time out in the garden with my headphones on, listening to some old wax cylinder recordings from the Irish traditional music archives. And um, really been been enjoying that so much. Just there's some there's a recording from 1905 that I was listening to recently. Um, what's that lady called? Margaret, Margaret Costello. Uh-huh. And um, it's just beautiful. Her singing is so nice, and even like the clicks and the thumps of the old recording are, are on that on that particular one. They're just lovely and atmospheric, and I've been yeah kind of. Yeah, just doing a bit of that and getting into that stuff, that side of things. I like I like all that side of the tradition and yeah. the history and, you
0: know. Yeah. And what about you, Eamon? Have you been doing stuff up in the Catskills?
10: Have you got a studio there or? I don't have a studio, but I do have an old caravan that I use as a little work room, <laughs> <or> a, little, <laughs> a, little, a little music room.
11: Right.
10: And, uh, Your old caravan <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah and uh it really should have been a so log cabin though i mean a caravan doesn't oh, well, sound I, quite right.
10: yeah no no we have the cabin but uh it's a one room cabin and there's two of us so the the caravan is a very necessary retreat for my musical pursuits <laughs> so um <laughs> uh, it's been it's been interesting you know i mean of course part of the whole joy of the music scene is the is the community and so when you Mm -hmm. take that out of the equation it obviously changes the whole thing and so it's been an interesting time sort of falling back on you know I I was never really that keen on solo performance and all that kind of thing but when you're sort of forced into it I, I found myself working on just my own things and then actually got kind of with a couple of friends, did some writing together. So, you know, oh, wow. friends here that would, you know, maybe send me musical ideas, and I'd write lyrics for them. And that happened with a few different friends and you could do that by kind of, I, I'm, I'm afraid it's a bit, uh, it's slightly primitive up there and that I don't have any wifi or anything like that. So nice. it's all, uh, I, 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 once it, once a day I'd go down into the town and send my little musical ideas to wherever, you know, and, and then get some ideas back and that would be, uh, it was a kind of a nice little break from the whole, uh, the whole circuit, but definitely missing just sitting down with other human beings. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and I've had a couple of chances to do it. Uh, you know, friends who come up to visit and sat around the porch and you just instantly remember what that, why you do it. And it's yeah. for that, those moments of communion, you know, and yeah. w- without those, it, it, it can be hard to, to, to sustain The thing without those moments, you need them.
11: It's quite emotional. Did you find when when you when you heard someone else playing?
10: Absolutely, without doubt. And 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 the first time you know singing a song with another person, you know face to face, and just you remember, yeah, how important that is, how sustaining that is in your life,
11: yeah. And and you released an album too.
10: I did release an album. Luckily. I, I had a, a an album recorded in late 2019 and uh had plans to release it in 2020 oh. and it's actually put out by a, a label in the uk called reveal records oh, yeah and uh so that was a record of my own songs but everything all of course all things got delayed and deferred and postponed so that record just came out this january uh, oh. it was a very a very quiet little release <laughs> i mean in that, like have to of be. course there's yeah there's no touring there's nothing like that so uh you know I, I i and i've done a handful of little live stream gigs i did one just the other night actually but right. uh of, of some of that new material but okay hopefully you know that'll be rectified in time and i'll get to tour some of those songs
1: what's the album called
10: that album is called the silver sun lovely and it's all original Songs
1: yeah, great so, um, I believe that you two love getting off the beaten track when you're touring and going to new places or you know some maybe more obscure gigs. um Have you got any favorites, nula? What's yours favorite place to what? play with with Eamon or favorite memory? Um, one of my favorites that
11: that just comes to mind is um newfoundland i loved that on the west coast of newfoundland it was so amazing like just under the stars with no electricity at night no when they turned the lights off we were staying in some place once the generator was off it was just just amazing the atmosphere there and the fjords and there was phosphorescence do you remember that in i mean yeah. and you oh, a magical jumped place. in and the, oh like that was amazing it was like being in some kind of film and um, playing music there was was magical. We, I caught my first fish there.
4: <gasps> Whoa, yeah, that's I right! Killed
11: it for me. I got it. got it. in the stream. <laughs> <laughs> I, I released the little ones from its insides, and then we we had a, a lovely dinner on the on the the rocky shore with some friends, and yeah, it was very magical. Memorable. I think that that trip was 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 one of the best ones, I think. What what do you reckon?
10: Well, definitely, I, I was going to say, one of the great things with touring as a duo is you're very portable, you're very mobile, mm-hmm. and you can kind of just pile into a car and go anywhere. And uh, So that's been great. And I think Newell and I both... Um, yeah, the, the, it's not... You know, you, we, you obviously have to take in a lot of factors when you decide to do a gig or not. Mm-hmm. And sometimes just seeing a new place is, is, is worth, you know, is worth so much. And uh, I remember especially a a, um, a trip we did up to the Yukon Territory in northwestern Canada and playing at a small, a tiny little native village in the far north of, um, of the Yukon called Old Crow and getting, we arrived to, to beautiful autumn weather And then the following morning woke up to a blizzard. And so we're actually stuck (laughs) and snowed in there for about five days and, uh, just, you know, and survived on the kindness of strangers and people bringing us, you know, warm coats and
11: salmon tails,
10: salmon and caribou and just a completely unique experience. Something that, you know, we never would have, you, you, you can't plan things like that on a tour. And, uh, I'm sure we lost plenty of money on that particular tour, but, you know, a, a priceless memory, you know, it's just a, I yeah. actually stayed in touch with some of the people from the community up there afterwards. So. Yeah.
11: yeah. I remember when you went out to forage with, for, for, food. <laughs> <laughs> <Snow>. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, Oh, someone else's snow gear on. And somebody lent us a fishing rod. I well, lent him in a fishing rod and I looked out the window and through the blizzard, and off he went to find something for us, to
10: Man the hunter. <laughs>
11: it really was man the hunter.
10: Right back to caribou, <laughs> oh, did you?
11: Is he Is he ever going to come back? Oh, I did, of course,
10: yeah. Yeah.
11: yeah. You saw the caribou out there, didn't you? You saw, you saw a camp.
10: Yeah, it was during their their, natives, no? their, their migration times. And, and yeah, we saw herds of them on the riverbank. And oh, yeah, just, I mean, a completely remarkable place. Um
1: they're enormous, so yeah, they're, they?
10: there are things like that, things like that that happen on the road that, you, like I say, you can't plan on things like that, but they are what make it worthwhile in a way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we hope you get back on the road soon and uh, we hope we get to see you soon. Um, but in the meantime, I think we're going we to play a track. You. What are we are going to play?
10: We're going to hear uh, a great old song called The Night Visiting Song. It's a well-known song uh, that was recorded well, probably most famously by the Dubliners, Luke Kelly, and uh, this is a—I believe we're going to hear a live recording of Nuala and I singing it in Newfoundland.
1: Appropriate. Thanks so much. Hope to see you soon. Bye. Oh,
10: thanks so much for having us. Pleasure.
1: Yeah, thanks a million. Cool. Looking forward to getting yep. back
11: to Bonnie, Bonnie Scotland.
0: was an old Dubliner's number, the night visiting song. We eagerly await Nuala and Eamon getting into the studio someday. Now for the final section in our final podcast. Carrie Finlayson chats about the Shugal's greatest fan. To tell you the truth, I'm not in much of a storytelling mood,
12: but I'd like to just say that we, we lost a big fan yesterday. Wow. Our biggest, one of our biggest fans, my mother. My mum loved the band so much she used to buy CDs by the box mm.
4: Mm. Oh, and, bless her. and distribute
12: them to oh. everybody that she met <laughs> she, she always refused to go on the guest list she, she, she bought as I would phone her up and say Mum, we're playing in the fruit market on such and such and, then, and she'd say, oh I know, I can, I've got the tickets <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but she, she uh, yeah, she she was responsible for the name of her. She her favourite her favourite Shugal was the Taminori. And she that was called the Taminori in her, her kitchen in Orkney when she gave Ian a cup of tea with a puffin on it and explained that mm-hmm. Taminori was Arcadian for puffin. Mm-hmm. And she used have, she used to love every album that came out but who would criticise it uh, only in that it didn't have the taminori on it <laughs> she thought it should be on all our
4: albums
12: <laughs> <laughs> but never mind
4: <laughs>
12: but and she was she, she was she didn't she had an attitude to she didn't have a very positive attitude to alcohol although she did like a sherry you know, a bit. but I remember being home once and uh, going out with, out to see what was new with my pals on the Friday night and on and, and the next station said, so what did you get up to last night? Say, oh, I just went out for a pint. What? A whole pint? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I had a whole pint. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd quite like uh, after we finished talking if if it was possible for, for uh, Jane Ann to put on Tammy just so that we can see goodbye to one of our biggest fans. And yeah. raise a raise a glass there when you can. Mm-hmm.
1: Great to hear Ian McLeod's tune there, The Tammy Norrie by uh, uh I realise that I've been quite remiss in not telling people that uh, all of Shogo nifty's music can be bought via shogonifty.com, including our wonderful theme tune silence of the Trams from their latest album, Acid Croft Volume 9.
0: Really just to thank you all for listening in to our series of podcasts. We've enjoyed catching up with many of our old pals and hope you've enjoyed listening in.
1: Thanks to all our guests, Signe Jacobs-Daughter from The Sheen, Nuala Kennedy and Eamon O'Leary, Gary Finlayson from Sugar Nifty, and extra special thanks to Steve Byrne for that wonderful tribute to Paddy Bord. I'd also like to remind you all, if you're listening to this during the festival, that uh, you still have until the 10th of May at 8 o'clock to watch Shetland Springs, our wonderful celebration of the Shetland fiddle tradition. And then at 8 o'clock on the 10th, our live stream is Rebellious Truth with Kareem Polwart, Mike Vass and Myra Green. I'd like to thank our PR team Emma Henderson, Anna Bradley and Christina Weber. Without them you'd probably not be listening to this at all. Thanks guys.
0: Our final thank you goes to our faithful hound Colin, who has been present and silent throughout these recordings. What a guy.
1: Colin <laughs>
0: Edinburgh Tradfest podcast is produced and presented by Douglas Robertson and Jane-Anne Purdy with the help of our hugely capable engineer, Dave Kay.
1: The theme tune, Silence of the Trams, is by Angus R. Grant, performed and arranged by Sugar Nifty. Information on all our guests and the music played is listed on our website, edinburghtradfest.com. Huge thanks to our funders, Creative Scotland and...
0: The William Grant Foundation, makers of Glenfiddich, and other wonderful things.
1: Please rate, review, and subscribe to Edinburgh Tradfest Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Apparently that helps other people find it. Thanks very much.